You're listening to Good Hustle, a podcast about bad teams. I'm Andrew Mackey. I'm going to ease us into football this week. We're not done with the boys of summer and baseball completely, but for right now, in the heat and humidity of the Midwest, I find myself dreaming of football season. For those of you out there with an attachment to a college football team, the last time you watched a game that counted would have been months ago. November if you were bad, December if you were good, January if you were really good. The spring game has come and gone, and you had your appetite whetted for the season ahead. Unlike pro football, college football has no preseason. The first time you see your team is the first time the games really count. So up until that point, you're able to live in a constant daydream of possible glory of what lies ahead. Every break will go your way. The coach will figure out what needs to be done differently. The hidden gems will shine. Your recruiting fixed your personnel issues from last year. And maybe this will finally be the year. College football is interesting because it's basically sports nationalism. You personally belong to who you cheer for. For a few months in the fall, your school becomes your identity. In parts of the country, certain colors will become persona non grata. You'll put X's over particular letters. Family gatherings get an added level of us versus them. And for one weekend a month, a state can tear itself apart. I can speak from experience. I'm from metropolitan Detroit. I was born into and raised by people who loved the University of Michigan. Growing up, I idolized the Fab Five basketball team. I wore the baggy shorts and black socks when I was playing elementary school ball. I had a Scott Dreisbach and Tom Brady football jersey, and I wore them so much I remember being made fun of for it. My grandparents lived on a small farm outside of Ann Arbor, Michigan the epicenter of Wolverine fandom. Then, it all changed. I ended up attending The Ohio State University. Teachers joked about not wanting to write recommendation letters for me. Family members were forced to choose. Only my grandmother would join me on the dark side, driven by a love of flying the Ohio State flag and telling others her grandson attended a Big Ten school. For a few months out of the year, I was a traitor to both my friends and my family. College football brings out all of these passions. So we're going to start our football season with life on campus. And we're going to do it in the South. A place where people dress up for games, have cocktails at tailgates, and if you believe the commercials, it apparently, quote, just means more, unquote. But we're not going to a traditional Southern powerhouse. We're going to South Carolina, a school that fielded its first football team on Christmas Eve way back in 1892. A school that went a century without winning a national title in any sport before a recent athletic renaissance in the past few years. And a school that when we join them, it is coming off a one-win season. They've just hired a new coach, the legendary Lou Holtz. He's going to try and turn the tides of history. So raise your right hand like you're about to give a toast, and let's turn the volume way up on the theme to 2001 A Space Odyssey, in honor of our friends and our story, which tells of a catastrophe in Columbia. This is Episode 5 of Good Hustle, the 1999 South Carolina Gamecocks football team. Chapter 1. With loyal devotion, remembering the days. 
Before we get started, I'd like to give you a very brief history of the birth of South Carolina's football program. As I mentioned earlier, South Carolina fielded its first football team on Christmas Eve in Charleston, South Carolina in 1892, where they took on Furman. At the time, the football team was not sanctioned by the university. They provided their own uniforms and paid their own train fare in order to participate in the game. They were nicknamed the College Boys by the News and Courier, and their supporters were guarded in black. From those humble beginnings, they continued to play. South Carolina would win its first game three years later, on November 2nd, 1895. From there, the team would appoint its first head coach, W.H. Dixie Whaley. And here's where it starts to get really important. In 1896, they played their first game against arch-rival Clemson. It happened on November 12th and South Carolina won 12-6. They wouldn't win the rivalry game again until 1902, where they beat a Clemson team coached by football innovator and man who even today the best player in all the sport gets a trophy named after, John Heisman. Football and the rivalry was young, but this game definitely planted the seeds. You can find quotes that players had said about this game, and one of them that I found that was particularly interesting was, quote, the Carolina fans that week were carrying around a poster with the image of a tiger with a gamecock standing on top of it, holding the tiger's tail as if he was steering the tiger by the tail. Clemson is the Tigers. South Carolina's team name is the Gamecocks, so this is what they're going for. Naturally, the Clemson guys didn't take too kindly to that, and on Wednesday and again on Thursday, there were sporadic fistfights involving brass knuckles and other objects and so forth some of which resulted, according to the newspapers, in blood being spilled and persons having to seek medical assistance. After the game on Thursday, the Clemson guys frankly told the Carolina students that if you bring this poster, which is insulting to us, to the big parade on Friday, you're going to be in trouble. And naturally, of course, the Carolina students brought the poster to the parade. If you give someone an ultimatum and they're your rival, they're going to do exactly what you told them not to do, Jay McCormick would say. As expected, another brawl broke out before both sides agreed to mutually burn the poster in an effort to defuse tensions. The immediate aftermath resulted in the stoppage of the rivalry until 1909. The University of South Carolina Board of Trustees banned participation in football for the 1906 season after the faculty complained about the coarseness of chants and cheers. They didn't like that the students were yelling these at football games. They didn't find them particularly gentlemanly in nature. But within months, the Board of Trustees would reverse their decision after hearing pleas and receiving petitions from students and South Carolina alumni alike. Play was allowed to resume in 1907. And it's here where we jump ahead again. Clemson and South Carolina would play in 1986, and the game would finish in a 21-21 tie. This game had political ramifications for the state, as South Carolina state senators, Rick Lee, a Republican, and Harvey Peeler, a Democrat, would introduce legislation immediately after the game that called for mandatory overtime, long before the NCAA would get rid of ties 10 years later in 1996. Peeler explained the proposal. Quote, the two teams would just have to tee it up and start playing until one of them beats the other, unquote. So that's your beginning, South Carolina. You tried to ban football. You then unbanned football. You've hated Clemson the whole time. You cannot be accused of going half in at any of this. 
And now we move ahead to 1999. The Gamecocks are coming off a terrible one-win season. They won their opening game and lost the remaining 10. They fired their coach, Brad Scott, who took over just two years after the school joined the blood sport known as the Southeastern Conference. A conference so proud of itself, they chant SEC at games when they beat teams from other conferences. Trust me, as I said earlier, I went to Ohio State. I know what this feels like. I'm not going to comment any further. But football is king. And if you don't dedicate resources to football in this conference, you're missing the point. Scott had some early success and brought South Carolina its first ever bowl game victory. But one bowl game win wasn't going to cut it in the SEC. South Carolina wanted to compete with Alabama, Tennessee, and Florida. They wanted to win national championships. So they went after a man who had done just that. Lou Holtz left Notre Dame after the 1996 season and walked away from a lifetime contract. He had won a national title with the Fighting Irish in 1988. He was a two-time National Coach of the Year. From 1987 to 1995, Holtz coached 65 players who were selected in the NFL Draft. He had coached 132 games in 11 seasons at Notre Dame and guided his teams to an all-time record of 100 wins, 32 losses, and two ties. He holds the Notre Dame record for most games coached and was second only to the legendary Newt Rockney in total victories. While he was away from football, Holtz was a motivational speaker, earning as much as $20,000 per appearance. He also worked as a college football analyst for CBS, but the whole time he said he missed coaching. After the Gamecocks hired Holtz in December of 1998, season ticket sales skyrocketed. 53,000 in total were sold, which was a record for the school. The Athletic Booster Association, called the Gamecock Club, raised a record $8.3 million for the athletic programs. Football was becoming something you could get excited again about in Columbia. Holtz was optimistic when he took the job. Quote, I looked at the job and said, we could win here. You look at the loyalty of the people. We have 87,000 fans a game. You've got great fan support. You've got a great stadium. You've got good athletes in the state of South Carolina. The problem is they leave. I take this as a challenge, unquote. He did, however, joke about the difficulty of the Southeastern Conference. Maybe it was just that old folksy charm that Holtz possessed. Maybe it was to make sure expectations weren't going to get too high. Holtz said, quote, They wouldn't send me a schedule before I accepted the job, so I never knew who we played until after I accepted it. When I saw the schedule, I thought it was somebody's preseason top 10, unquote. Holtz said he accepted the job at South Carolina at the urging of his wife, who had regained strength after battling throat cancer for a few years. The position also became more attractive to him when his son, Skip, who was currently an offensive coordinator up in Connecticut, decided that he would join his father's team in South Carolina. Holtz had a reputation for being intense, and the Gamecock players, they really took to Holtz's intense, father-like approach, screaming included. Quote, people always told me he was really intense, and he is intense, John Abraham, an outside linebacker, said. I kept seeing all those clips of him grabbing people by the jersey and grabbing them by the face mask, but he treats us like men. I want to play up to my potential, and that's what he wants for each player. Holtz and his staff would get a late start recruiting, but he still managed to get running back Derek Watson, a 6-foot-1-inch, 205-pound running back 
who was named Mr. Football in South Carolina. It was a significant and notable signing for the team. Most of the fans were upset that the fact that three of the four down starting linemen on Tennessee's national championship team were from South Carolina. Watson had initially verbally committed to Tennessee before accepting a scholarship with the Gamecocks after Holtz became their coach. This is a big change. It's something about changing the culture of a school and a university. South Carolina was suddenly landing the kids who had left for greener pastures. Eventually, the atmosphere around the South Carolina football program would change. Ray Green, a senior defensive back, said that as the losses mounted last season, players openly argued with one another on the sidelines. Coaches questioned each other's play calling. The losses just snowballed and it killed our morale. There was no control. The heart of the team just wasn't there. Holtz had instilled greater discipline and confidence in the players, and he had done it in just a few months on the job. Senior free safety Arturo Freeman said, quote, We're going to come out every game knowing we're prepared to win. We have confidence in our ability, and we have confidence in the play selections. On defense, it's no more of that, let's try to hold them down. We're coming in with an attack attitude. There are no more doubts. You can go to bed the night before expecting to win, unquote. Again, trying to temper the preseason expectations, Holtz said he couldn't do anything about what others thought the team would perform like. He wouldn't predict how many games the team would win, and he said he was concerned that the players' confidence could be shaken if they experienced too many early season losses. Quote, We could be a pretty good football team by the middle of the year, Holtz said. How do we build confidence? That's the question. If somebody has expectations, that's their concern. I want us to be as good as we can be and build it on a firm foundation, unquote. South Carolina would start the Lou Holtz era on September 4th at a game versus North Carolina State on the road in Raleigh. Chapter 2. When Proudly We Sought Thee, Thy Children to Be. On August 17th, a tropical wave emerged off the western coast of Africa. Tracking steadily westward, the wave remained devoid of any significant convection until about August 21st, when the associated shower and thunderstorm activity increased a few hundred miles northeast of the Leeward Islands. Why am I telling you this? Because this tropical wave would have an impact on the South Carolina-North Carolina state game a few weeks later. By September 4th, that tropical wave was a full-fledged tropical storm, the remnants of Hurricane Dennis to be precise and it was dropping up to 19 inches of rain across North Carolina. But even though there was a tropical hurricane sitting off the Carolina coast, football waits for no one, unless there's lightning. I'm sure a hurricane is a great omen for your first game. Thanks to the game-time deluge brought by the remnants of the storm, Holtz's career got off to a miserable start as his team lost four of eight fumbles. Both teams were flustered by torrential rains and high winds, The teams combined for just eight passing completions. North Carolina State would manage only 96 yards of total offense. South Carolina's offense looked pretty good in the storm, racking up over 230 yards total. Freshman and former South Carolina Mr. Football, Derek Watson, would rush for 118 yards in the monsoon, but he could never find the end zone. Early in the fourth quarter, the Wolfpack would score the game's only touchdown, and it happened on a block punt. They would win the game 10 to nothing. Holtz's debut was a loss. The team had fought hard, but in the rain, anything can happen, and it did. His team were shut out by the weather and NC State. The next week, though, they had a matchup with rival Georgia. This game wasn't good either. 
South Carolina was losing 17 to nothing late in the third quarter before they'd get their first points on a field goal after stalling out. Georgia would tack out another touchdown to make it 24 to 3. Finally, not giving up, with 3 minutes 16 seconds left in the game, quarterback Bill Petty dropped back and saw two receivers in the end zone, one of whom was waving his arms fanatically because he was wide open. Petty would almost overthrow the receiver. It was headed towards out of bounds when it was caught by number 10, Carlos Spikes, who managed to drag both his feet and score Carolina's first touchdown of 1999. It was also the first touchdown of the Lou Holtz era. Then they'd miss the extra point and lose the game 24-9. Spikes' catch was spectacular, and it would have to hold the Carolina faithful over, since it would be their last touchdown for another two games. On September 18th, in front of the fifth largest crowd in school history, a total of 82,605 fans packed into South Carolina's William Bryce Stadium. Coach Holtz would lead his Gamecocks onto the field at home for the first time. They were playing East Carolina, a school that wasn't in a power conference, and they'd lose 21-3. The next week, it was another shutout this time against SEC foe Mississippi State. Four games, 12 points, one touchdown, zero wins. During the month of October, Carolina would get into the heart of their SEC schedule. They'd start with home games against Ole Miss, Kentucky, and then they'd head on the road to face Arkansas. They'd lose all these games by a combined score of 114-34. to It was now homecoming, October 23rd. Carolina was soon to clash with Vanderbilt. The Gamecocks were 0-7 on the year and had lost 17 games in a row going back to last season's opener. Vanderbilt is not a historical football powerhouse. They're the SEC's perpetual doormat. So if anyone is ripe for the picking, it would be the Commodores. The Gamecocks came close to giving Lou Holtz his first victory as South Carolina coach. They took an 8-3 lead into the fourth quarter, but Vanderbilt would go on a 10-play, 90-yard drive, finishing with a touchdown pass to put them ahead with seven minutes left to play. Once again, Carolina scored no offensive touchdowns in a game and accumulated their points on two field goals and two safeties in the 11-10 loss which is an absolutely ridiculous scoring line. The defense, led by Abraham, was pretty good. The offense was led by a rotating cast of characters. The play calling was being switched between Phil Petty, Mikhail Goodman, Kevin Sides, and Kyle Crabb, partially because of injury, partially because of performance. Freshman running backs Derek Watson and Andrew Pinnock were learning fast, but it wasn't fast enough. The team had lost their 18th game in a row. The Gamecocks would then lose 19-20 and 20 on the road to top 5 ranked Tennessee and Florida. This would set up a game against interstate rival Clemson. Chapter 3. Here's a health Carolina. Forever to thee. The year before this rivalry game was the climax of two awful seasons. The Post and Courier, the South's oldest daily newspaper, referred to this game as the Loser Bowl. The head coach of Clemson, Tommy West, 
and South Carolina's old head coach, Brad Scott, shook hands at midfield after Clemson's 28-19 win. Clemson would finish the season 3-8 and fire West. South Carolina, as you know, finished 1-10 and fired Scott. This was the year before. South Carolina had just hired a new coach, Lou Holtz. Clemson had hired a new coach, too. And Clemson's new coach was the son of one of Holtz's old rivals at Notre Dame. Tommy Bowden had taken over the Clemson team that year. He was the son of the legendary Bobby Bowden. His father had been a rival of Holtz's while he was coaching at Florida State. And now it was Tommy's turn to become a rival of Holtz's while he was coaching South Carolina's rival. Clemson was coming into the game looking to become bowl eligible. As you know, Carolina was 0-10, losers of the last 20. Clemson got off to a quick drive, but missed their field goal. Carolina then dominated for the remainder of the first quarter, piling up 128 total yards of offense, which basically matched their season average for a whole game. It netted them, though, only two field goals, and they led 6 to nothing after the first. Early in the second, Clemson would go on a long drive and finish it with a two-yard touchdown run, making it 7-6. to Later, Clemson would add another touchdown pass to extend their lead to 14-6. to Carolina would get a rushing touchdown, but fail their conversion, and the score was set 14-12, to heading into the half. However, Clemson had one last attempt before halftime. They would go on a long drive and almost score a touchdown before they too would settle for a field goal. Halftime, 17-12. to Carolina wasn't getting blown out, and that first win was on everyone's mind heading into the locker, and nothing would be sweeter than beating Clemson. After the half, Clemson would rush in another touchdown. The game would go to the fourth quarter, 24-12. Carolina would have to put out more points than they had all season if they were going to pull this out and avoid a winless year in Holtz's first season. Clemson had almost doubled the Gamecocks' total yards when we began play again. Carolina's big freshman tailback, Andrew Pinnock, would break a 15-yard run, but after another missed two-point conversion, it was 24-18. Carolina would then intercept the ball with 11 minutes to go. This was their opportunity. They could swing the momentum. They could swing the game. They could end all of this curse, but they too would have to settle for another field goal, which left the game at 24-21 with eight minutes to play. It was getting pretty tense. The Gamecocks' defense would try their best to keep them alive, and it had been their best part of the team all year. They forced a fourth down. Clemson would call a timeout, and then they decided to go for it. They were going to go for it on fourth and ten from the Carolina 30. They they weren't going to kick a field goal. They were trying to ice the game right here. It was a very risky move. The Clemson quarterback dropped back to pass, and the Carolina defense came after him. The line held. The quarterback threw a dart, and on the screen, you see an orange helmeted streak heading towards the end zone. It was the kill shot. Clemson would take the lead and win the game, 31-21. Clemson players dumped Gatorade on their coach in celebration. Only it wasn't first-year head coach Tommy Bowden. It was former South Carolina head coach Brad Scott, who was now Clemson's assistant head coach. He was then hoisted onto the shoulders of their players and carried off the field that day at William Bryce Stadium in Columbia. On the other sideline were players Scott had recruited, who he had sat in their living rooms and convinced to come to Columbia. That was all gone when the Gamecocks fired him after last season. But there he was, high above the players, victorious over the team that he had led the season before. Football is like that sometimes. Rivalries are like that. The season was over, and Carolina hadn't won a game. Their offense in 1999 averaged only 7.9 points per game, which was dead last out of all the 114 teams in Division I college football. Their opponents would average around 25, 
which meant that the new season ticket holders and fans excited in the preseason saw their boys lose games by a margin of 3-1. to one. Holtz knew the job he had ahead was going to be tough, and the Gamecock fans had to live with just one win in two football seasons. Carolina accepted there would be some growing pains, but they had probably wished, though, that they could get a win or two out of this season as well. 1999 would be the only time that Holtz would suffer through double-digit losses in his Hall of Fame career. The next season, Carolina would win their first four games, breaking the 21-game losing streak and would finish the season 8-4. They would advance to their first bowl game since 1994. Holtz, the Carolina defense, and quarterback Phil Petty would lead the team to their second bowl game victory in school history, defeating The Ohio State University 24-7. In 2000, Derek Watson would have at the time the sixth best rushing season in South Carolina history, and now a senior Petty, Holtz, and Carolina repeated the feat in the same bowl game against the same Ohio State, a year later winning their second bowl game in three seasons. Things were looking up, but Holtz's first prize recruit, the former South Carolina Mr. Football, Derek Watson, would be kicked off the team just before the 2002 season. With Phil Petty graduated, the team would underperform that year. Holtz wouldn't make another bowl game while coaching at South Carolina. He'd retire in 2005 with a record of 33 wins and 37 losses with the Gamecocks. After Lou Holtz would come the old head ball coach, Florida's Steve Spurrier, who brought South Carolina its highest level of football success in history. They would go 11-2 for three straight seasons. They would have five bowl victories, finishing as high as fourth in the Associated Press poll. But none of it led to that elusive national championship. They would never receive a bid to a major New Year's Day bowl game. They would never win the Southeastern Conference. And by 2015, even Spurrier would resign midway through the season. And just like that, the most successful era of South Carolina football came to an end. The season after Spurrier would resign, in 2016, Clemson would win the football national championship, their school's second claimed trophy. South Carolina has never been number one at any point in their history. The school that took the field for the first time on Christmas Eve in 1892 is still searching for that first football championship. This season was recommended by Madeline. I hope I did your alma mater justice. If you have a season you'd like featured on Good Hustle, reach out to the show at listentogoodhustle.com or follow me on Twitter at Andrew Mackey or on Instagram at Hello Mackey, and that's spelled M-A-C-K-E-Y. Good Hustle was written edited, and hosted by Andrew Mackey, with some help from the birds outside. I would also like to wish my mother-in-law, Patty, a very happy birthday. We'll see you next time.